Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to talk today about an anxiety that's becoming more and more pervasive in American politics, the idea that Americans are becoming more divided politically, culturally, to a degree where maybe there should be some concern about the health of the republic. And Obviously, there are a lot of questions that stem from that, but let me just begin with the underlying assertion. In your judgment, are these growing fissures a legitimate cause for concern? Yeah, I think they are for two reasons. One is breadth and one is depth. And by breadth, I mean almost everything that you can imagine today is becoming politicized, whether it's the 49er football team in Kaepernick or whether it's ESPN or whether it's a random terrorist act. We immediately try to find and calculate and calibrate to what degree it substantiates or rejects a particular left-right view. So I can't think whether it's the movies or TV shows or sports events. And so it's a little bit different than it has been in the past. It's more analogous to the 19th century during the Civil War or maybe to a degree in the 1960s where almost every issue uh, that is in the contemporary political discourse is broken down as them versus us, or bleeding Kansas or something, or hippie and straight. And that that encompasses football, and it encompasses TV shows, Hollywood movies, uh, contemporary events, natural disasters. There's immediate political dissection. And I don't know whether uh, the Internet and instant communications and iPhones and all this has energized the debate so it's quicker or it's more intensive or it's just the change in the Democratic Party into a, as I said, into a progressive, hardcore, uh, fundamentally transformed American politics, but it's very different. So if we were to appropriate a phrase that has a slightly different providence, Americans always seem to have a little bit of a it-can't-happen-here mindset when it comes to the capacity for things like these to sort of lead to a widespread breakdown of the status quo in a, in a democratic society. As a historian, how do you respond to that contention? Are there historical examples we can look to for instances when even in relatively liberal societies, you start to see the center no longer holding? Well, you can see it both inside and uh, a nation and then in international relationships. World War One in 1913 was one of the most peaceful uh, continents in the world, and people thought they'd sort of transgressed the barbaric Neanderthal War. Or the United States had was right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s, and they'd had a series of compromises uh, about slavery, and there were people talking about buying out slaves in the South and ending the, the problem that way, and there was solutions on the horizon. And so... Uh, whether we look, and the Roman Republic had lasted for 700 years until the Caesarian Republican split with Caesar and Pompey. So it, it, these things come very fast, and proven institutions are no guarantee that they're going to exist in perpetuity. So I'm a little worried because uh, when you have a shooter who goes out and he 
has a list of people he wants to assassinate, and the people on the list are probably almost enough to to carry a, a different party's majority if they were taken out. And when and the reaction to that, people are starting to say, "Well, he wasn't." You know, there's people who say take out Republicans, or they're not shocked as they otherwise would be, or they blame Trump for it. You get the impression if that won't shock people on the left, I don't think anything will. So. There's one other dimension, Troy, and I think that's that if you look at the legislatures, the governorships, the Congress, both House and Senate, the Supreme Court, the presidency, and you look at a county map of the United States, you get the impression that the Democratic Party is a minority party. It's confined to the coast and the inner city, and it doesn't have a message that has wide resonance, and that creates other outlets for progressive expression. So they take to the street, they sue they try to challenge the electoral college, they cherry pick a judge, but they're doing extra political um, processes to regain power and influence. It's true they have Hollywood, they have popular culture, they have the, the university, but they don't have political power, and that becomes increasingly frustrating for them. What's the media's role in this sort of reciprocal acrimony? I mean, are they just sort of tracking something that's happening organically anyway, or are they fanning the flames? No, I think that the Democratic Party is sort of a fusion party. I wrote a column once on that and said that if you listen not to what I say or you say they say, but what they say they say, and when Jorge Ramos or Jim Rutenberg from the New York Times or Christian Amanpour very calmly and dispassionately say, you know, we can't be disinterested in the age of Trump, uh, we have to take on an an advocacy position. And then as Jorge Ramos said, because the democratic party is not doing their job, we have to do it for them. So their media really does believe that they're on the barricades and Trump is such a special case or the Republicans in the house are such a special case that their noble aims of preserving this progressive project, allow them any means necessary. And we saw some of those means in journalist, which was superseded by WikiLeaks and now we start to see, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper using obscenity on in the middle of a telecast or people who were comedians and obscene brought in to be interviewed as if they're serious news commentators or people just giving up all objectivity. I don't want to keep bashing Obama, but when you have a new phenomenon, when a Chris Matthews says his leg tingles or a David Brooks says a pants crease or Evan Thomas says that the president is like a god, if you're willing to say that, then you're also willing to say that Trump is Satan, or he's the worst we've ever seen, or he should be decapitated, or he should be stabbed, or clubbed to death. I'm just repeating what people have said. So they lost credibility in their enthusiasm and adoration of Obama, and now they've lost credibility in their demonization of Trump. But it's the same hysterical response from complete slavish obeyance to sort of mindless Pavlovian opposition. And the common denominator is they don't believe they're disinterested media anymore. You wrote a piece recently for National Review about this kind of nationwide cultural antagonism. And I, I want to dial in here on one quote in the piece. This is specifically in the discussion of how immigration affects this. And you write, Either the United States will return to a shared single language and allegiance to a common and singular culture, 
or it will eventually descend into clannish violence, close quote. So, Victor, when you say a common and singular culture, obviously a country that is as populous as the U.S. has a wide variety of regional subcultures, of ethnic subcultures, you know, take your pick. So I don't read you as saying there that there's no place for variety, but as saying that diversity can be taken too far, especially for its own sake. So what are the parameters? What do you understand by the phrase common culture? Well, a common experience and a common devotion to both path, tradition, and values and the present trajectory of the United States in accordance with its constitution. But I mean, there's a large number of people, one-fourth of all Californians were not born in the United States, and I would say eight out of ten young people of all different classes and statuses don't know much about what the Constitution is. If you ask them what the Battle of Midway was or Valley Forge, they have no idea. So we've replaced a common educational experience with a therapeutic dash studies approach to education. And there's large segments of the population that are they're sort of off the reservation. And so when somebody like, I'll give an example, Brett, Steve, Brett Stevens wrote a passionate op-ed in the New York Times, and he said, we should get rid of some of our population and bring in people that are not here, you know, illegal. I mean, illegal aliens are better than the irredeemables, is how his article translated. But Brett Stevens lives in Manhattan, and he's a child of corporate people that, you know, multinational corporations that were working in Mexico. Brett Stevens doesn't live where I do. So he doesn't go into a small town and see an Aztec totem in the park that says Viva La Raza. Or he doesn't uh, open his door one day and five people are out on the side of the road throwing a mattress on his lawn and you can't communicate to them either in Spanish or English because they they speak an Indian dialect from Oaxaca, or he doesn't take a walk around his yard and find five pit bulls with their entrails uh, eviscerated from dogfights that are dumped in there. So we have things that are going on in the United States that we haven't quite seen in a long, long time, or we doesn't have neighbors who have Romex uh, outhouses and have violated every imaginable zoning procedure and are told by the county zoning officer that basically in coded language, you guys have to follow the law, so you pay the fines or the permit fees to pay for our office because we can't approach that problem. It's reached critical mass. There's so many people in Central California that violate every zoning imaginable uh, procedure that we just have to give them a de facto exemption. So... Our elites don't understand how everyday people deal with that problem, which explains the Trump phenomenon. So there's a lot of people. All I would suggest that David uh, Brooks or David Frum or George Will or Brett Stevens, I just wish they would just go online and read the daily uh, Modesto or Fresno Bee and just look at the front page and read the, the news. And the news every day is gang killing drunk driving, six dead, three dead, four dead, section of the highway shut down because of maintenance, um, zoning violation, ch children left abandoned. I mean, it's, it's wild west. It, remi it reminds me of what you read about Tombstone or Abilene about 1880. And I don't think they understand that.
and I know where I'm speaking right now from Stanford, that nobody understands it. But that's not unique now in California. There's places in Arizona, there's places in Texas that we have large elements of the population that don't share a language, they don't share customs and procedures, they don't share the lang- uh, legality, they don't share the education. And we're trying our best with the old-fashioned melting pot. And that's just the immigration side of it. If you factor in the failure of the educational institutions, then you have people who were born here and in many cases know even less. So I'm not optimistic in a lot of ways. A lot of folks on the right think that part of the way that you ameliorate these national tensions is via federalism. You let states and cities go their own way on policy. And, of course, lately – that's increasingly being embraced, maybe opportunistically, on the left as a way for liberal states to put some breathing room between themselves and the Trump administration. To what degree do you think federalism can be a tonic here? Well, the whole purpose of federalism was based on uh, constitutional principles, and it was that in matters of borders, in matters of uh, national defense, in matters of some criminal law, that there was a federal law that superseded state statutes. So if the federal government wanted to say you can't practice bigamy anywhere in the United States or slavery, they could go into a place like Utah in 1850 or, you know, Alabama in 1865 and say, stop it. But what we have now is uh, it's mostly a progressive idea that particular states are so much more sophisticated than the majority of Americans and their representatives in Congress and in the presidency that they can pick and choose which state laws to follow that are in uh, that they're not in sync with or they're in opposition to federal laws. So if you're in San Francisco or San Mateo County where I'm now speaking and somebody gets in a hit and run accident and he's DUI and he's not here legally, then they're not gonna they're not going to follow the law, i.e. the San Mateo sheriffs and turn him over to the immigration and customs enforcement. They're just not going to do it. So they're saying that state law trumps federal law. But if you say to that same person, you know, I live in a very conservative area and there's towns near me like Tulare where a lot of people are armed and they cannot stand to wait 30, 90, 60 days, depending on the weapon for federal gun registration. So we're just going to give guns the way we want. And they'll say, you cannot do that. That's chaos. So when you talk about the South Carolina version of nullification, it's usually progressive enclaves that say that they're smarter than the federal government. They can pick and choose, but nobody else can do it but them. That the Endangered Species Act is a federal law and it must be enforced in every county in Wyoming. But immigration law or federal ideas about emissions, they are subject to state override of federal statutes. And that's where we are now. It's all premised on the idea that certain people in the United States are better educated, they're more liberal, they're more progressive, they're more cosmopolitan, they're more caring, they're more ethical, they're more moral, and they have earned the right to dictate to clingers, irredeemables, and deplorables what they can do. And it's it's... We're headed to a collision. So far, all the violence has been basically on the left. If you go to a campus, conservative students are not shouting 
shutting down speakers. They're not chasing people off campus. If you go to a rally, they're not screaming and yelling about blowing up anybody. If you go uh, on, turn on the TV, you don't have a lot of right Ted Nugent's type people that have exposure. So it's a left-wing phenomenon. It's all predicated on we're a minority of the population, but we're the moral superiors, and we get to get an exemption. But um, what I'm worried about is when people just turn on the TV, 51 55% don't like what they see. And they haven't gotten mad. They've just taken it. But if you start to push them too far and say, you are going to bake a cake for a gay person, whether you like it or not, or we're going to sue you, or you're going to have illegal aliens in your kid's school, whether you like it or not. And they know that those rules are not followed by the elites, that they have ways of navigating around the ones they've, then you're setting up a backlash. And I've seen it one time before and it propelled Richard Nixon to the White House in 1972. And I think that for all the problems that Trump is having, the reason he's not going to be impeached or he's not going to be removed or he's not going to have the emoluments clause or 25th amendment is because he's riding a, a wave of support that has had it in this divide it's it's i'm kind of scared about it to tell you the truth i, I want to i want to close with your prescription again this is from the piece that you wrote last week all americans need to take a deep breath step back and rein in their anger and find more ways to connect rather than divide themselves. Politics, Victor, seems like one of the least promising avenues to begin that endeavor. So f find more ways to connect ourselves. How would you suggest that Americans start going about that? Well, what I try to do is when I write, I say to myself, it's kind of wishy-washy, but to the degree you don't have to demonize a particular person, they can get the message by saying, uh, you can document it in such a way or describe an incident without demonizing a particular person. And then I say, in all of these fights, I will create deterrence so people will not attack me by retaliation, but not provocation. So I have an idea that I'm not going to attack somebody on the left first. I'll only reply in kind if they attack me. And then in my personal life here at Hoover or uh, at home or with my family, I always say to myself, you should take two or three provocations and turn the other cheek. And I try to do that. And then at some point, you have to inform a person that's enough. But if you don't step back a little bit and everybody takes provocation at the first sign, I think we're going to we're not going to make it. And then I try to think, of well, how do we have commonalities? So I try to talk of things How's your children? How's your job? How's how's your health? And try to find ways that you can. And it's very hard, Troy, because I have three, two brothers and two adopted cousins. And of the four of them, they're either radical Bernie Sanders supporters or Hillary Clinton supporters. <laughs> and they all, you kind of think that I've lost my mind. And. But I, tr I, I try to get along. If I can get along with them, I can get along with anybody. That's my attitude. <laughs> there right. As hard left as you can come. Well, on that note, this has been the Classicist Podcast. You can look for another episode soon. In the meantime, please rate the show on iTunes and stop by Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. 
where you can read more of Professor Hansen's commentary. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.